This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, Open Markets Institute Director Sally Hubbard looks at the history of monopolies in American industry and provides her thoughts on how to prevent monopoly power. She's interviewed by Bloomberg News reporter David McLaughlin. Sally Hubbard, thank you for coming on to discuss uh, Monopoly Suck. It's a very uh, timely book because the issues you, you write about in the book, the power of dominant companies in the U.S. economy and, and their impact on, on workers and, and consumers and, and citizens is, is really a very uh, hot topic in economics and, and policymaking uh, right now. And, and we'll see, but it could play a big role in, in the incoming uh, Biden administration. So I thought um, we should begin with sort of the big picture um, about uh, that, that you lay out in the book. I think when people hear the title, they might uh, say, yeah, of course, uh, no one likes monopolies, no one likes dealing with monopolies. Um, but really this book is about a bigger issue. You're warning about a kind of a worrying trend really across the economy that I think uh, many people may not fully understand. So I thought you could maybe first just kind of set the, the scene for us and, and, and describe uh, what, you see, what you see happening. Sure. And first, David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today about this book. And thank you to C-SPAN for having me here to talk about it as well. Um, right. We all know that monopolies suck, right? That's not a surprise for anyone. Um, but what's been happening over the last several decades is that our economy has been getting highly concentrated. And there's just been consolidation on an ongoing basis that's led to basically every major sector of our economy being controlled by just a few companies. So we hear a lot about the big tech monopolies, but no matter whether you're talking about tech or food or agriculture, um, you know, name the industry, you're going to have a monopoly problem. Uh, and I specify in the book, I'm talking about monopolies, but I'm also talking about what are called duopolies, where we have two companies that rule an industry, and oligopolies, when you have three companies or a few companies that rule an industry, because basically you do not have robust competition when you have only a few players. And there are a whole lot of harms that flow from this that I wanted to highlight to, to readers to let them understand what it means for their everyday life and how it affects them uh, and underlies a lot of their pain points that they experience on a daily basis. Right. So it is, as you, as you write about, uh, across the economy, you know, it's it's um, uh, our cable, our uh, our cable service, uh, of course, the tech companies, but also uh, in healthcare, uh, airlines, many many industries. Can you sort of talk about um, how we got to this point? Um, you sort of explain in the book that there was this um, revolution uh, in uh, economic thinking several decades ago around around competition. Um, can you explain um, just how we got to this point in the economy? Sure. So, you know, these antitrust laws that we have in the United States have been around for a very long time. You know, the main law is called the Sherman Act, and that was passed back, to, back in 1898. And we had some pretty good antitrust enforcement for many decades. Uh, we had, you know, a pretty deconcentrated economy uh, for a large Part of our history, um, you know, after we overcame the first Gilded Age. And uh, 
really it started to get rolled back around uh, the early 80s. Um, it was the rise of the Chicago School of Economics, um, and we you know which is also known as neoliberalism, and uh, the kind of the takeover of antitrust law to change what it's supposed to be focusing on. So antitrust law is really supposed to promote competition in open markets. Uh, you know, it's all about making sure we don't have concentrated power, making sure the markets are functioning freely. Um, but what the Chicago School of Economics did was say, really all we care about are making sure that corporations are efficient. And if corporations are efficient, they're gonna pass on these efficiencies to consumers in the form of lower prices. Consumers are going to benefit. And so that's gonna be what we look at when we're deciding whether any company is violating the antitrust laws by either you know, acquiring a company that it shouldn't acquire or uh, behaving in an anti-competitive manner to exclude competition. The test is going to be, will this be efficient uh, and will that you know, lead to lower prices for consumers and unfortunately, all these years later, we found that this focus on efficiency has not in fact led to lower prices for consumers. What it's done is it's justified every kind of anti-competitive behavior and acquisition uh, as you know, making that basically bigger is better and that these corporations become these streamlined, efficient um, machines by getting bigger and bigger, but actually no one is really benefiting from this. Consumers aren't ben benefiting from it. The only people who are really benefiting from the, you know, supersizing of our corporations are really uh, the C-suite executives and the major short shareholders. Um, so that's kind of how we got where we are. The antitrust laws got very weakened by the courts as the courts adopted this thinking um, of the Chicago School of Economics and really rolled back the way that the antitrust laws were being enforced. Right, so the Chicago School uh, took over a lot of thinking, um, even during uh, Democratic administrations, um, certainly during Republican administrations. But right now, it's, what I think is interesting is that there's a bit of a uh, counter-revolution going on that's um, taken over in the last few years. I, I, I do notice on the, on the bookshelf behind you, you have a number of books about about this issue, break them up, uh, monopolize. Um, uh, so, and your book, of course. And, and so I wonder if you could explain a little bit about um, this pushback that's, that, that's cropped up because, um, I mean, I'll let you weigh in, but I think in the last probably you know, just three or four years. I mean, it's very recent that there's been a real pushback mm -hmm. that's actually created some uh, momentum in the other direction. That's right. Um, yeah, the authors of these books are all my friends in the anti-monopoly movement. We're a small but mighty movement. Uh, we are not uh, huge and well-resourced, despite some articles that have come out recently claiming that. Um, but, uh, you know, I really have to give credit to the organization where I work now, the Open Markets Institute. Um, it's been at this for, you know, I mean, my, my, the executive director, Barry Lynn, has been at this for a long time. Back in 2005, I believe it was, he wrote his book called The End of the Line, where he was predicting that we would have shortages in the event of a pandemic because of the consolidation of supply chains. 
Um, and he started the Open Markets Institute. First, it was at uh, first it was at New America Foundation, but when they put out a statement criticizing Google, they were ousted from the New America Foundation, uh, which was partly funded by Google. And um, they've been at it for you know, like I said, the better part of a decade. Uh, and finally, uh, it's reached more people. Uh, people are being able to see the problems that. Um, we've been seeing for a long time. I personally have been uh, in the antitrust field, uh, gosh, a very long time, um, I guess 15 years now. Uh, so, you know, I started seeing some of the challenges when I was an antitrust enforcer at the New York AG and how the antitrust laws weren't really working. Um, but it was after I left that I was able to join kind of this movement of thinkers uh, really showing that the current system is not working um, that you know, our economy is becoming so highly consolidated that it's not working for most people, and that antitrust enforcement had gone missing with huge harms uh, related to it. But I do have to give credit to the Open Markets Institute uh, and, and the movement that is growing every day, getting bigger every day. Uh, you know, but we have a, basically 30 years of evidence to show it's not worked. So um, the writing on the wall is pretty clear. Right. So this is an issue now that's uh, being written about in, in, in popular books, um, certainly in mainstream media. Um, can you explain a little bit about like why, you know, why do you think this, um, this counter-revolution, as a, I'll, I'll call it, uh, has been, you know, sort of emerged uh, and has been uh, successful? I think it's been successful because you can't ignore the problems anymore. I mean, the harms of having a highly consolidated economy are just so great and people are struggling uh, and, you know, people want to figure out how do we fix our economy and our economy right now is really only working for a select few. You know, the 0.1% have gotten richer and richer, uh, have more wealth than the bottom 80% of Americans. And the ability just to make a living is just so much harder than it used to be. Uh, and then we have all kinds of other harms in terms of concentrated control over speech uh, and how that's affected our democratic processes like the election, um, you know, harms to entrepreneurship, harms to just, you know, the cost of healthcare. So many harms uh, that have come out of allowing corporations to become so giant and our markets to be no longer competitive uh, that I think the pain is really why the movement is being successful. Um, you know, the evidence is just, you can't really ignore it at this point. So people always say to me, oh, are you sure anything's gonna happen? Or isn't this all too complicated to do anything about it? And I always say, I'm really confident that we're going to get our markets working again and get competition working again, because we don't really have a choice. This current course is not sustainable. Uh, you know, so I, I really think it's a matter of when, not if, uh, and, and what we're trying to do and I'm trying to do is make it happen sooner by getting people to understand how this affects their daily lives so that they can rise up and start pressuring for the government to do its job and force the antitrust laws and other anti-monopoly uh, policies so that we can have open competitive markets again. And so this is an issue that uh, has certainly been taken up by progressive activists. Um, and uh, Elizabeth Warren, when she was a, a candidate 
um, for president uh, talked about the need to, uh, or she argued, she, she said it was important to break up big tech companies. Um, and at the time that was um, pretty radical for a presidential candidate to be, to be talking about one antitrust and then uh, uh, advocating for something like a, a breakup of a company. What I think is interesting and I wanted maybe wanted you to talk about was a little bit um, about how antitrust, antitrust in this country has a history of being very political. Like a century ago, it was something that um, was very much on the mind of, of politicians. And, but then that changed, it seems, and it became a, uh, something that was very apolitical. Um, I think until maybe right now. Um, can you talk about that history and why why you think it is that it's sort of, well, at least in the last few decades, sort of disappeared from the political conversation? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think the main reason why it disappeared from the political conversation is the same thing we were talking about before, involving the takeover of the Chicago School of Economics instead of it being about making sure we had fair competition um, and that antitrust law was deconcentrating power, which is always what it was intended for, it became a battle of experts um, doing you know, regressions and you know, complicated economic analysis. Uh, and it became so overly complex that no uh, average person could really um, talk about it or be involved in it. You know, it was, I think it was honestly a deliberate complication of antitrust laws. Um, I mean, obviously to make it much harder to prevail against any corporation. Um, there was, you know, just kind of this, you know, I mean, now to, 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 even for an antitrust enforcer to sue a big corporation, you're talking about a years long, multi-years long, multi-million dollar often effort. Um, you know, so it was really in service of corporate power to make it so complicated and so difficult to prevail with all these, you know, um, and, and impossible to meet burdens, basically. Uh, so I think that was a deliberate strategy um, in, favor, in, in favor of corporate power to take away this tool that really does belong to the people. Um, you know, back when Senator Sherman passed the Sherman Act in 1898, he said, if we will not bear a king of, uh, as a political power, then we shall not bear a king of, of commerce and trade. Uh, so it really is an issue of uh, democracy and concentrated corporate power. And when we defeated the first round of robber barons that we had in this country at the original Gilded Age, uh, it was really a citizen movement that did that. The, you know, Standard Oil was a monopoly on the scale of what we have today, although not global like the ones we have today. But it was a big, bad monopolist that ruled all the markets, controlled the political system, may have seen insurmountable to overcome Standard Oil. And there was a journalist named Ida Tarbell who did investigative reporting about Standard Oil Company, exposed all of its misconduct, and published it in magazine articles that then turned into a book, actually caused a popular uprising and I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, they're in my book, but um, there were these, all these wonderful cartoons from the Gilded Age where they were trying to show uh, monopoly power in these images that would be very accessible to the average person to you know, anger them and get them involved in the movement against monopoly. 
And it was only when the citizens rose up that the government did break up Standard Oil. And then it also passed uh, the Clayton Act, which bans uh, uncompetitive mergers, anti-competitive mergers. So I really believe the citizens must be involved. We will not overcome monopoly power unless we have an engaged citizenry, because the reality is that the concentrated economic power of monopolies translates to tremendous uh, political power. And uh, the only way to overcome those millions of dollars of monopoly money uh, is through the people. Uh, so yes, it has been taken away from the people. It needs to come back from the people. This is a tool to ensure that we have equality. We have an American dream that's alive and functioning um, and that we're not being ruled by corporations, both economically and politically. And actually, so I think this would be a good time to explain how we make decisions about antitrust enforcement in this country because it's, um, it is not a decision that's made very openly or by Congress. Uh, it is a very, I, I think, as a journalist, secretive process. Um, but talk about um, the antitrust enforcement kind of regime in the United States and, and just, just so people understand and, and um, how that process works and, and what enforcers, uh, what they're really their job is in terms of um, enforcing the law. Sure. So in the United States, we have a few different uh, types of antitrust enforcers. We have the Department of Justice. Uh, we have the Federal Trade Commission. And then at the state level, we have state attorneys general. They have their own antitrust laws, state antitrust laws, and they have the power to enforce the federal ones, um, like the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act that I mentioned before. Now, the FTC and DOJ, people can get confused about who gets what type of case. It's kind of just a matter of resources and specialization. Um, there's not an incredibly clear distinction between which type of case goes to which agency. Um, you know, there's a few different ways that they go about uh, beginning an enforcement, uh, beginning to do enforced antitrust laws. There's the merger context when large corporations have to actually notify the federal agencies when they are going to acquire a company of a certain size. And there is a certain amount of time that the agencies have to look at that merger pretty quickly and decide whether or not they're going to take a deeper look, which is called the second request, um, and get more documents and investigate it, or whether they think it's okay and they're just gonna let the deal go through. Um, if they do the second request, then they do, they ask for more documents, they do, you know, interviews and whatnot, and then they'll decide whether or not to sue to block the case, to block the deal. Unfortunately, they don't just have the unilateral ability to say, okay, we've investigated this and uh, we've determined it's anti-competitive. They have to prevail in court. Uh, they have to sue in court to block the deal and they have to win. And unfortunately, the judges um, have, a, have bought into the Chicago School of, of Economics ideology so strongly that often it's even hard to win basic merger blocks. We saw that recently with the, the uh, lawsuit against the Sprint T-Mobile merger. That's something that should have been a straightforward, you know, a slam dunk merger block when you're talking about uh, a horizontal merger among competitors 
where they had actually shown that there was going to be billions of dollars uh, or millions of dollars of price increases um, to consumers as a result of the merger. And still the judge declined to block that deal. Um, so that's one context is the merger context. The second main context is uh, the conduct context where antitrust enforcers uh, are looking at anti-competitive behavior. And they will find out about that either because someone, uh, some player in the market complains to them or they read a news story, they get a tip um, and they might decide to investigate, you know, for example, Amazon's mistreatment of third party marketplace sellers or something like that. Uh, and then they investigate it. And again, they have to decide, uh, can they win in court? Because the laws have been so narrowed in terms of the legal precedent that's come out in the last 30 years, it's hard to win those cases, particularly monopolization cases. And so enforcers are always trying to decide, can we win in court? Uh, and oftentimes the answer is no, even when it is clearly anti-competitive conduct. So that's kind of the problem of why we've seen such weak enforcement. Um, there's this calculus of can we win in court? And increasingly the answer to that is no. I do think that enforcers should be more aggressive, should be more willing to lose. Because even when you lose, you're showing Congress, hey, these laws are not working and you need to step in and fix these these bad court decisions that have made the antitrust laws uh, so toothless. Uh, but yeah, that is the process. It is quite opaque. Uh, there's not much for you know the average citizen to do in terms of seeing what the what these agencies are deciding. The investigations are confidential. Uh, but once they do sue in court, then it becomes a much more transparent process. And so. Um if you think that it's important for this process to be more political than it has been, how do you see going forward, um, or is there anything uh, those interested in this issue can do actually to, you know, have a voice in this process? Because, you know, these investigations, you talked about the, the merger investigations, I mean, that can take a year. Essentially, there's no pronouncements or progress announced by the agencies when they do that. Uh, the same goes for monopolization investigations when they happen. Um, so it doesn't seem to be much of a role, in, if any, for um, uh, citizens to, to have a voice, right? Well, you know, I think that citizens uh, are key to us turning around these, this weak antitrust enforcement that we've had. And that's the whole reason why I wrote the book, to let people know this is what anti-monopoly, this is what monopoly rule means to you in your life. When you're struggling every day and you can't pay your bills, when you're getting gouged on pharmaceuticals, when you're um, having, a, you know, conflict with half of the other half of America and living in a divided America, uh, what does monopoly have to do about it? The whole reason why I, I wanted to make, let people understand what it means to their lives was so that they could get involved. So I firmly believe that citizens are key, um, but it may not be at the agency level. It may be um, in terms of pressuring Congress and their elected representatives to reform the antitrust laws. 
So what we don't normally do is have Congress pass laws and then let judges completely destroy those laws, okay? What we normally do is if the judges start to destroy the laws that were democratically, uh, you know, passed, then the, the Congress needs to rein in the judges and say, no, that's not what we meant when we said... When we say you're not allowed to monopolize, we meant you're not allowed to monopolize. We didn't mean uh, you have to prove a, a thousand things you can't prove in order to win a monopoly case. So, you know, a big role for uh, citizens is to be involved in supporting anti-monopoly reforms at, at Congress, uh, supporting those candidates who are willing to be aggressive. I mean, it's a really brave move for people like Representative Cicilline who um, is in the House and heads up the Judiciary uh, Subcommittee's uh, Antitrust Subcommittee of the, of the House Judiciary um, to endeavor to do an in-depth investigation of big tech and to propose all kinds of reforms. That takes a lot of bravery and we need to have his back. We need to uh, support those lawmakers who are willing to stand up to concentrated corporate power because there's tens of millions of dollars of, of monopoly money, uh, encouraging them not to do that. Uh, so that's where I think the citizen is the most involved. Uh, and, you know, if Congress changes some of these really bad court decisions and makes clear that we want the antitrust laws to function, and here's how we can do it with simple bright line rules that don't take, you know, 10 years to, to bring a case and that don't require, you know, millions of dollars of economics fees, uh, fees for economists, then we can start to see real change. So, um, and, you know, that's just one part of the anti-monopoly toolkit, reforming the antitrust laws, but that's certainly a really important role for citizens to play. So I wanted to talk about some of those recent developments because, you know, you've, as, you've, as you've explained, you've been very critical of enforcers not doing enough. Um, but just last uh, month in October, you know, the Justice Department uh, sued Google uh, in a monopolization case. That was the first major monopolization case in 20 years. That's a long time. Um, so it seems that maybe the enforcers are uh, changing uh, and becoming more aggressive. Do you agree with that or, or not? Yeah. I mean, U.S. Uh, v. Google was a big, big deal, a big deal. Um, folks criticize it as being somewhat narrow in scope. It is only getting at, you know, the tip of the iceberg in terms of Google's anti-competitive conduct. I mean, Google has eight products with over a billion users. It's constantly pulling levers to distort competition. So the, the DOJ's first complaint is really only getting at a fraction of that behavior, but it's still critically important that we finally have an antitrust case against um, a monopolist under the Section 2 of the Sherman Act, which is the provision that, that bars monopolization. And like you said, the last main case was U.S. v. Microsoft. <laughs> that was a long time ago. I was in law school. <laughs> I am a lot older than that now. <laughs> yeah. um, that was actually my introduction to, to antitrust law was the U.S. v. Microsoft. Um, so, you know, it's been a long time. It's a big, big deal that we finally turned that corner. And it's really only the beginning, only the beginning of what we're going to see coming against Google. And then we also have, um, 
you know, the FTC is expected to sue Facebook in the next month or two. Uh, we're going to have state attorneys general adding to the Google case with their investigations into other aspects of Google's monopoly power and and a monopoly, um, I'm sorry, and a competitive behavior. Uh, so no, it's a huge deal. So why is it that it took 20 years? Um, I mean, Google has been a huge successful company for a long time, probably that long, right? And uh, Facebook is, is newer, of course. Um, but how do you explain if, if monopolies are, are such a problem in, in the economy, uh, why would we go 20 years uh, without a, a case against uh, a big company? Well, I mean, as I was saying before, the judges had really uh, made it very difficult to prevail in a, in a Sherman Act Section 2 case. Those are the ones that uh, go after monopolization. There's another part of the Sherman Act, which is called Section 1, and that is when you have more than one company agreeing to uh, restrain trade. So if you have a couple companies that have fixed prices and um, you know have agreed that they're going to charge the same amount to consumers, when I was working as an antitrust enforcer, most of our efforts went to those Section 1 cases because they were easy to win in court. Once you prove that there's been an agreement to restrain trade, when you, once you prove that these companies have agreed to fix prices or to rig bids, uh, then it's called per se illegal. It's automatically illegal and you win in court. Uh, most of the antitrust agencies do have limited resources and there are there's enough uh, section one violations going on to keep quite busy just doing that. So really section two is just lower, that's the monopolization uh, law uh, was lower priority. And the other thing is we've also had merger mania for the last several decades. So I mean, we're basically drinking from a fire hose, as I say, with of merger reviews. So it's not like antitrust enforcers are sitting around doing nothing. We're reviewing millions of mergers. <laughs> we're bringing cases for price fixing. Um, but Sherman Act Section 2, the monopolization law just got lower uh, priority because they are harder to win in court because the courts had really reined it in um, and really narrowed it uh, the, the law's reach. So that's one of the main reasons. And again, that's the, the whole triumph of, of neoliberalism uh, in the courts. Um, the other thing is with Google and uh, these big tech companies, uh, when we're operating under this consumer welfare standard, which was the point that I was saying earlier, that the idea that we let the corporations get big, they become more efficient and consumers benefit in the form of lower prices. That was the whole ideology behind it. And so the standard that the courts apply uh, is this consumer welfare standard. And with a company like Google, where things seem like they're free, uh, it was much easier for it to kind of fly under the radar than say if it was you know, a, a company that was gouging us all on the price of, of chicken or whatnot. Um, you know, uh, it didn't fit well with the consumer welfare standard to go after these companies because um, what could be better than free, right? And so that was really um, how they got away with it for so long. Uh, when in reality, as I explained in the book, you know, they're not free. We're, play, we're paying with our data, we're paying with our attention, and we're paying in so many other ways as taxpayers and workers and entrepreneurs. Um, but, you know, the, really the currency is our data, and our data is highly valuable. 
some economists even say that if you had a competitive marketplace and on um, online, we'd be getting paid for our data. The companies would be competing to pay us uh, on how much they should be paying us for our highly valuable data. Uh, but that's another reason why these tech companies went so long without uh, seeing enforcement is because of this kind of myth um, that they were offering free services and therefore, you know, optimizing consumer welfare to such an extent. Um, although I would like, to, I just want to make the one point that USV Microsoft wasn't actually about price increases to consumers. Right. But at the same time, people will say, um, yeah, but Google is a great service. Um, and it's just a great search engine and gets me what I need. Um, but actually DOJ lays out some, some actual things that Google did that, that hurt the market. I think maybe we should, um, just as an example of how big tech, uh, in your view can harm competition. Maybe you could sort of explain exactly what the justice department is alleging. It's not just really about the data. Um, it's about actual conduct that they engaged in. Right. Um, no, I mean, so basically what the, the Justice Department is alleging is actually a, a near clone of USB Microsoft. So what happened in USB Microsoft, I'll just go into it really quickly, uh, was that Microsoft had a monopoly on computer operating systems. It had 95% market share. And so it told the computer makers uh, if you want to sell a computer with Microsoft, uh, Microsoft's operating system, well, then you have to install our apps, our, our software, our, our browser. And so um, it basically made it so that Netscape Navigator, which was a, a competing browser, had really no shot at competing. So this is the big distinction. Always ask yourself, is this competing based on merit to be the best? Or is this using muscle? To, make, to kick out the other comp company and make sure they don't even have a shot at competing, okay? So it wasn't, my, it wasn't Microsoft saying, we're gonna have better features than Netscape and therefore we're gonna win. It was, we're gonna make sure they don't even have a chance. There was all these hot documents, them saying these type exact things. Uh, we were just gonna make sure they don't even have a shot at, at competing. And so because computer makers didn't have a choice, they didn't have another operating system they could use to sell their computers, they had to accept Microsoft's terms and install Internet Explorer as the default uh, browser and not Netscape Navigator. And the funny thing about this is if we hadn't brought that case against Microsoft, if the DOJ hadn't sued Microsoft, there would have been nothing to stop Microsoft from doing the exact same thing when it came to search engines, right? It could have said, everyone got our uh, browser, we made you take our browser, you will also take our search engine. And if it were not for US and Microsoft, we might not even have Google today. So that's the irony of this all. Um, Google learned from Microsoft, hey, that works pretty well. <laughs> and uh, Google uh, acquired the Android operating system, um, did not, you know, it bought that. And then it um, told phone makers, hey, you want uh, our operating system? Oh yeah, there's no other real option out there. You know, the Apple operating system is not licensable for phone makers then you need to take all of our apps. You need to make our apps the default. So any other company that could have been a, a competitor to Google and search or a whole other suite of apps, you know, maps, video, 
couldn't even get to be the default in the uh, in, in Android phones, which have you know a tremendous market share worldwide. Uh, so it really did the exact same thing. And so it used a, a series of exclusionary agreements to make sure that it was the default um, search engine for all kinds of devices, um, not just Android devices, but also Apple devices, and um, to make sure that no other company could even have the opportunity to compete. Um, I know people say, well, you know, Google makes this point, well, it's a lot easier to download uh, an app these days. And I mean, I remember back in the days of Microsoft, you have to like get the CD in the mail and install it. <laughs> it was quite different right. um, than just going into the app store and, and downloading an, a competitor. But um, so, so Google says, well, they just choose us, you know, they could choose others. But the reality is Google paid, I think it was $12 billion to Apple last year to be the default. So if it was just that everyone was choosing Google, why would they need to spend $12 billion to make sure that uh, they were chosen as the, uh, that they were the default? So um, it's kind of a, a loser argument, in my opinion, on Google's part. Um, and so anyway, it's not just that they're competing on the merits being the best, it's that they were making sure that no one else had a chance to compete. Right. Um, you touched on this briefly, but um, while, so while the Justice Department and the FTC seem to be maybe waking up from their, their slumber, um, there's also action in Congress uh, just very recently um, from the antitrust subcommittee in the House led by Representative David Cicilline. Um, you mentioned him briefly, but uh, that also is significant in the sense that um, I don't even know when the last time Congress took up antitrust in, in that way. So maybe you could uh, talk about what that committee did in the last year and what they'll be possibly doing uh, in the next Congress. And the work of the committee, this is the, the antitrust uh, subcommittee of the House Judiciary led by Representative Cicilline. Um, the work of their, the committee over the last uh, you know, 16 months is truly amazing, phenomenal, and historic. It's exactly the kind of thing that Congress should be doing all of the time, but has not done in a very long time. Um, you know, to me, it really restored my faith in democracy that to, these, that uh, our elected officials were willing to take on corporate power in this way, you know, with the problems that we have of corporate uh, lobbying and influence of money on politics, this type of um, really taking on powerful corporations is just such a rare sight, at least in, you know, my adult life. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was really a truly wonderful thing to see. Um, I was honored that they invited me to testify in the very first hearing, which looked at the influence of uh, Google and Facebook's monopoly power and digital or and duopoly power and digital advertising on uh, the journalism industry. And um, then again, I got to testify at the last hearing, which was looking at proposing solutions for moving forward. So they had, you know, many hearings over 16 months, they reviewed millions of documents, hours and hours of uh, interviews with folks who came forward uh, to, to tell their stories, and they created a 450-page report. 
So for anyone who doubts that these companies um, have behaved in an anti-competitive way, there's 450 pages for you to read. Um, and then, of course, I talk about it in the book um, if you want to not read 450 pages. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's not just that these companies are on top because they're the best. They have taken their, you know, muscle and made sure that others don't get a chance to compete. And, you know, that's not legal. <laughs> that is illegal under the antitrust laws, uh, you know, and so I'm very optimistic that the proposals that, that Representative Cicilline has put forward in this report will start um, being included in legislation and hopeful that we'll be able to make some real, uh, you know, reform in terms of, you know, it's the antitrust laws, it's encouraging things like interoperability so that uh, entrepreneurs and other upstarts can be uh, compatible with some of these infrastructure, um, you know, some of these essential infrastructure that these companies control. Um, it's also, you know, having non-discrimination rules, which are similar to what we had with net neutrality to ensure that everyone that has to deal with these companies, which is nearly every major business, uh, is treated on the same terms. Um, so there's a lot of aspects to it. It's not just about strengthening the antitrust laws, uh, but it's incredibly, um, you know, wonderful to see. And I'm, I'm very, I, it is really a historic turning point right now uh, in our democracy and, and uh, especially regarding, you know, going after the tech platforms, of course. Yeah, so the report describes the, the tech companies and it focused on Apple, Facebook, Google, and Amazon, basically describe them as, uh, gatekeepers, right, in the in the economy. And so in all their different markets, it basically said that each company in its own way is choking off uh, competition, um, whether through mergers or other, other conduct. Um, and actually, though, the recommendations go beyond just go beyond just tech. I mean, we talked earlier in the conversation about the focus on on prices, um, the 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 report's recommendations, one of them is to sort of, in my view, kind of rewrite or uh, throw out that framework of antitrust right now and and consider um, an enforcement decisions a much broader set of considerations, um, like effects on, on workers and um, small businesses, that sort of thing. I don't know if that will will go anywhere, but I mean, do you see it as um, something, uh, a blueprint or, or whatever that could change um, enforcement more significantly than just in, in tech? Oh, definitely. You know, and all of us uh, in the anti-monopoly movement were like, great job, now do every other, every other sector of the economy. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, some of the changes could certainly impact every sector of the economy. You know, if we go, get back to what antitrust law was supposed to be about, which is promoting competition, um, then a lot of the harms that flow from allowing these monopolies to rule will go away. So, you know, it's, there's a kind of a difference between saying uh, we're going to consider all these other factors in our analysis um, or, you know, the way that I look at it is that once we start enforcing the antitrust laws as intended, which is just to promote competition, we will get all of these other benefits that flow from having open competitive markets. 
Um, so workers will benefit because, you know, workers are better off when they have many different possible employers to choose from. You know, it's, I have a whole chapter in the book about how wages have been depressed, how workers have got, and workers and employees of all kinds have taken a smaller and smaller share of the productivity and the value that they create as our economy has gotten more and more consolidated. And the bargaining power that workers have, uh, you know, is so much less when there are only a few main competitors in each sector. Um, you know, we've seen wage stagnation, and I think Anna Monopoly has a huge part of that. And if you're not an employee, maybe you're an entrepreneur, and then you're being denied opportunities to compete um, because you're blocked out of so many markets or you're squashed if you challenge a dominant company. Uh, so, you know, all of these benefits to workers, to entrepreneurship, to, you know, deconcentrating speech, to me, they all flow from ensuring that our markets are competitive. So you don't actually have to say, we, we're focused on speech, just <laughs> you make the markets competitive, we'll have speech benefits because we'll have less concentrated control over speech. Um, and, you know, so obviously to the extent we're able to reform antitrust law across the board, we will see benefits in agriculture um, and, you know, uh, pharmaceuticals, right? You know, we'll see benefits across the board if we reform antitrust laws to actually promote competition, which is what they're intended to do. Yeah, so I wanted to, we've talked a lot about tech. I did want to ask you about like an, another industry. Um, you write, there's a chapter in the book about healthcare, many examples of some problematic conduct in, in healthcare. Um, I thought that just as an, uh, as an example, you might be able to talk a little bit about, about Mylon, which is the maker, this is a product many people will be familiar with, the maker of EpiPen, the allergy medication. Um, so they did a lot to, you describe in the book, to sort of um, keep their hold on on, on that market. Um, can you talk about, about Mylon? Sure. And I think, you know, Mylon is an important example for a couple different reasons. One thing is that when we're all being gouged on prices for uh, pharmaceuticals and essential, you know, medical care and equipment, we don't often think about monopoly power. I think the average person thinks, okay, this is our messed up uh, system, healthcare system. Um, we do have a lot of problems in our healthcare system, but if we reined in the actual violations of antitrust law by big pharma, I can guarantee you we would get billions of dollars back. Um, you know, we would really trim our uh, healthcare costs because it's rampant. I mean, it is. I spent most of my time at the uh, New York State AG's office just focused on healthcare because it was just like playing whack-a-mole every um, time. That it, it makes business sense for these big pharmaceutical companies to violate the antitrust laws because the fines that they pay uh, are not as much as the gains that they make. I mean, that's just a basic, that's a basic criticism for antitrust enforcers, right? Like if a company makes billions of dollars breaking the law, don't fine them millions of dollars, right? Um, you know, then it's just, okay, cool. I'll do that again. That, that worked out. Um, so with myelin, so the one point I was saying is that, it, you know, it shows how monopoly leads to higher prices. We pay in, in America, EpiPens costs on average $600 in France. I think they're $60. Um, the other important point about myelin is how when you allow, uh, markets to become 
concentrated, you get shortages. And that has been a critical issue with the COVID pandemic. Uh, people need to understand how much the monopolization of our economy made us, as I like to say, sitting ducks in the face of COVID-19 because we did not have enough of anything because all of our supply chains were so consolidated. When you have two companies in the world making swabs that are needed for testing, okay, that's a monopoly problem, right? And um, that's what we've seen with EpiPens, which is which Myelin makes. You know the the um, the EpiPens that every child with peanut allergies or life-threatening allergies needs to have constantly uh, are often just not available. There's shortages, and parents who are like, if my kid's in school and someone eats a peanut butter sandwich next to them, and they end up they could they could die, and I can't get the medicine because it's not available. Well, how is that possible that we have shortages? <laughs> Myelin did so much anti-competitive conduct to make sure that there will be no other, no, no, that, no, no other epinephrine injectors on the market. Um, that not only does it, can it charge $600 in the US, but it also uh, can make sure that there's no other options available when it runs out. Um, and so, you know- there you, you, wrote, you wrote about how they took steps to make sure other competitors uh, didn't get into school. Right. Um, and you know, this is all I should say so that, so that I don't get sued. These are all allegations and a complaint, um, by a competitor, uh, to Mylan. And I have not personally seen these documents, but they're all in a complaint by Sanofi, another pharmaceutical company that was trying to come out with a a competing, um, injector. And, uh, what Myelin said to schools was, if you want um, the price that were the discounted price that we're giving to schools, then you can't stock any other type of injector. Obviously, budget-strapped schools have no choice to say um, no to that situation, and especially when the EpiPen is the dominant uh, injector out there that most people know how to use and whatnot. They have to kind of make sure that they stock that. Um, so it actually took steps to make sure that schools didn't have the uh, alternatives available to them. And this was after Mylan spent lots of money lobbying to require all schools to have EpiPens in the first place. <laughs> so there was, you know, a, there was a period in time when Mylan had the most lobbyists at the state level. It, it grew the most lobbyists at the state level than any other corporations at a particular period of time when they were making sure that it was required by law that these EpiPens were available, um, which doesn't seem like a bad thing, but then to say, oh, and only our EpiPens, <laughs> um, only our injectors. Uh, so, you know, it creates, when you have these big pharma companies doing anti-competitive conduct to make sure that there are not other competitors on the market, we get shortages and we get overpriced drugs. Um, you know, the other main way that we see it is with something that's called pay to delay, it's literally pharmaceutical companies paying generic drug companies not to introduce their generic drugs. I always said I should have been a generic drug uh, manufacturer. Talk about a great job, right? <laughs> you just get paid for nothing. Millions of there dollars. Are many, there are many other examples in the book. Um, the whole chapter, uh, we won't have time to get into it, but uh, hospital consolidation is, is another issue that actually enforces have been pretty active around, but at the same time, people watching this will know that in, in many communities, there's generally one or maybe two hospitals, uh, typically controlled by large companies. Um, and that means higher prices uh, when, when we get sick, because 
there's only one choice. Right. So it means higher prices when we get sick. It also means bed shortages, right? With COVID, when we had a huge crisis of not enough hospital beds, that was because we had, you know, beds, reductions of beds over the last decade in tremendous number. I forget the exact statistic, but it's in the book. Um, and uh, also the other side of that is it leads to depressed wages for healthcare workers. You know, there was economists that estimated that nurses should be getting paid far more than they're currently getting paid. And the reason why they're not is because they have, you know, monopoly employers. And so they don't have bargaining power. Um, work, their bosses are not competing their employers are not competing to hire them. And so their wages have really been depressed by the monopolization of hospital systems. So it affects you as a worker, it affects you as a patient, um, it affects you as someone, uh, and it affects your pocketbook. Um, so those are some of the ways that it affects you on a daily basis and, under, and causes a lot of the pain points that we all have in our daily lives. So in the few minutes we have left, I did wanna ask you about um, we're about to change administrations. Um, and I wanted to get your prediction on what you think, um, how these issues you think will be handled by uh, a Biden administration and, uh, and the next Congress. Yeah, so um, I think it's a little hard to tell what's going to happen with the Biden administration. I think once we get the appointments in terms of who's heading up the Department of Justice uh, and the Federal Trade Commission, and we see who's in charge uh, making the decisions, we'll have a better sense of that. Um, that makes a big difference. I think um, there will not be any kind of a rolling back of what the DOJ has done so far. You know, the Google case that the DOJ has brought is not any kind of an innovative or boundary pushing case. Like I said, it's a clone of USB Microsoft, which is still good law. So it's not a case that I expect to be curbed in any way um, by the Biden administration. I do think there's increasing pressure on the Biden administration to take action. I think the Biden administration experienced the dangers of concentrated control over speech when we saw every little uh, decision that Facebook made leading up to the election, uh, having huge impact on the campaign's reach and the, the flow of disinformation, um, and often really benefiting uh, the Trump campaign. I mean, there was a study by the markup showing that the Trump campaign actually paid less per ad than the Biden campaign did. And that was because its ads um, performed better, which means uh, are more likely to cause people to make a reaction. That's what Facebook's business model is programmed to do, get people to react. So content that causes fear or anger um, is actually favored content by Facebook's business model and, and they actually boost disinformation and misinformation. So I, I, I would expect that the Biden administration would have an appetite to encourage or ensure that our marketplace of ideas is robust, that we can have a public sphere of debate again, instead of having each person getting their own targeted, individualized uh, stream of content that we don't even actually see the same speech that each other is seeing. Um, I think still be you know a lot of evidence coming out in the next few months showing how much disinformation 
uh, influenced this election and was boosted by both Facebook and YouTube. So I expect that, you know, that problem is going to continue to get attention. So I think we're going to continue to have robust, uh, uh, you know, this, this new movement is going to continue. I'm very optimistic, but like I said, I would like to see uh, who he appoints to know for sure. And what do you foresee in the next uh, Congress, uh, if anything? Uh, at this point, we don't know whether the Senate will be controlled by Democrats, but um, if Republicans hold control, do you see any movement there? Yeah, so antitrust is actually one of the very few bipartisan issues, um, you know, in our in our country right now. Uh, so I actually think that anti-monopoly is one way that we could try to start unite America. I think uh, folks on both sides of the aisle realize this is a problem and can agree. Um, some of the mo more aggressive um, uh, opponents to monopoly power are on the right. So it's not necessarily the case that, you know, a Democrat or Republican, um, you know, uh, control influences directly anti-monopoly policy. And in fact, it's kind of like what kind of Democrat and what kind of Republican. Um, so I'm optimistic that, um, you know, the reforms that Cicilline has proposed will start to get more traction. I know there's other lawmakers like, uh, you know, obviously Senator Warren, Senator Klobuchar, um, Senator Blumenthal, Hawley, Booker. Um, we have a lot of different um, folks who are really focused on these issues right now. So I do think we will see legislative reform. Um, even when Cicilline's report came out, the Republicans led by Ken Buck, uh, came, put out an, a memo that said that they did agree with nearly all of the findings of the report. And I think they actually agreed with all of the findings and just disagreed with some of the remedies, some of the proposed remedies. So I do think we will see um, change as just a question of, you know, how aggressive it'll be depending on, and I have not yet had time to figure out exactly who's taken um, seats to see if they're anti-monopoly or not quite yet. Okay, well, with that, um, we are out of time. Thank you, Sally Hubbard, author of uh, Monopoly Suck, Seven Ways Big Corporations Rule Your Life and How to Take Back Control. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.